0: Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. And today we'll be talking about queerness during the golden age of piracy. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. And pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. We'll be discussing contemporary homophobia, including the outlawing of sex between men and related trials, and punishments including execution and the pillory and related mob violence. There will also be numerous minor references to more general violence, including executions, whippings, gun violence, jewels, and beatings. There will also be references to slavery, the heavy consumption of alcohol, and sex, including sex between adults and minors. So if any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to a different episode instead. Are you telling me that pirates aren't fun as per usual i feel like the list of content warning sounds way more intense than it is (laughs) and the pirates were fun but pirates also did like hit each other a fair bit (laughs) (laughs) i also wanted to quickly apologize for the delays in bringing this episode out i have had some health issues but we're here we're doing it it's happening I also wanted to apologize for the fact that we will not be discussing Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Read in this episode, as I believed we said we would be doing on (laughs) our social media. I did initially plan to include Anne and Mary in this episode, but it just kind of got too lengthy and I decided it would be better to give them their own episode at some point in the future instead. So this is basically just all about male pirates today. I will also just briefly mention that I'm not going to do a section talking about our sources before the episode, I will address some things as they come up. So I didn't feel like it was necessary. And we've kind of reached the point with the lit review being such a trademark that I felt the need to explain myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm like, where's my lit review? Where's I love the lit review. The lit
0: review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wanted to first of all, begin by doing some background into this time period. You know, what is the golden age of piracy? When are we? What's happening? What is a pirate? So let's clarify some of those points. Obviously, piracy has a very long history. It's existed for a long as people have been moving valuable things around on boats and other people have wanted those things. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be focusing on what is called the golden age of piracy, roughly between 1650 and 1730, during which time piracy flourished in the Atlantic. The pinnacle of this golden age was in the 1710s and 1720s when pirates were at their most numerous and successful, and it's during this time that famous pirates such as Edward Teach, otherwise known as Blackbeard, and Bartholomew Roberts were sailing and creating the popular image of pirates that has lived on in the media today. So why were there so many pirates during this time? During this period much of the land that surrounded the Atlantic was controlled by major European imperial powers – Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, France, and England. Just a list of like the biggest villains in history, basically. <laughs> <laughs> these powers frequently waged war against each other earlier for control of these lands, but increasingly instead vying for control of the Atlantic trade network and commodities such as gold, silver, furs, slaves, sugar, tobacco, and so on. Control of the sea and these trade works now represented a very enormous source of wealth and power, but the Atlantic is big, <laughs> and the empires <laughs> that relied on it for this wealth were unable to effectively police these huge expanses of open sea. So many of these commodities were created or shipped via various ports in the Caribbean, which also has a lot of like small inlets and areas of shallow waters, which made it very difficult for larger vessels, such as these imperial powers would generally have in this area, to pursue the smaller ships of pirates by sea, which I think creates a very funny sort of image. (laughs) Admiral Edward Vernon, who was a British admiral, described it as sending a cow after a hare. (laughs)
1: I do like the idea that they would just, like, if they went into, like, a small inlet or something, the big ship would just be sitting there being like, yep, yeah, we are heavily armed and the British Navy is here, but there's nothing we can do about those little guys right right there.
0: Yeah. It really, like, contributes to the kind of underdog... Yeah image. Yeah. It's also not difficult at this time to find people who are willing to buy and sell stolen goods. So all of these conditions obviously create very tempting opportunities for people who might want to become pirates. It was also an increasingly difficult time to be a sailor. At various times during the 17th century, the Netherlands, France and England indirectly employed privateers, who are essentially state-sanctioned pirates to harass Portuguese and Spanish ships and steal their wealth. After the War of Spanish Succession ended in 1714, many privateers in England found their commissions expiring. They were now out of work, being told, okay, the thing that you've been relying on for your living is now illegal, so a lot of them decided that they valued the money more than the legality and just continued being pirates. Many pirates were originally sailors on merchant or naval vessels as well. These men were subject to very horrific conditions, they had cramped quarters, meagre or even rotten food, You know, rampant disease, disabling accidents were common, They commonly were disciplined extremely harshly from their superior officers and so forth. And in response to these conditions, some crews would mutiny and just declare themselves to be a pirate crew now. More often sailors became pirates when ships they were sailing with were attacked by pirates and they were asked if they wished to join them. Pirates wanted to only take volunteers for the most part in order to have a cohesive and more successful crew. They did make exceptions, for example, if they needed skilled workers such as carpenters, but for the most part they took volunteers mm-hmm. william snellgrave was <laughs> i'm sorry yeah, that's all right f- f- was a funny name yeah. that's <laughs> what you were
2: going to say yeah we right. can
0: we can laugh at english names on this podcast <laughs> yeah. yeah these um, could be our ancestors we don't know anyway william snellgrave was the captain of an english slave trading vessel which oh was we captain- can laugh at him so yeah much. yeah, yeah. <laughs> william snellgrave was the captain of an english slave trading vessel which was captured by pirates in 1719 And he was told by pirates that they met no resistance when they took ships, for the people were generally glad of an opportunity of entering with them. We can also see this in sentiments expressed by the pirate William Fly before he was executed on the 12th of July, 1726. William was given the opportunity to speak before he was hanged, and he was expected to effectively be a propaganda piece and affirm a set of Christian values and the justice of his sentence. But instead, he took the opportunity to warn masters of vessels to, quote, pay sailors their wages when due, and to treat them better, saying that their barbarity to them made so many turn pirates. Good. So we've had a bad William and a good William. Yeah, that's true. I can't remember specifically, but it's probably not the last William will mean either. Can I take a drink every time a man is named William? Yeah, yeah all right, sounds good. <laughs> Pop free game for my evening. <laughs> so I next wanted to talk a little bit about more specifically, like, who pirates were, you know, what kind of demographics we see on these ships. Based on contemporary records of pirate ship activities and crew sizes, the pirate historian Marcus Redeker estimates that there are about 1,500 to 2,000 pirates active between 1716 and 1718. Oh, that's actually not as many pirates as I pictured, to be honest. That's not the peak. Between 1719 and 1722, there's between 1800 and 2400, so that's like the peak of the pirate populations during this Golden Age, as best we can estimate. And then that number starts to decline, with there being only about 1,000 and 1723, hundred and seventeen twenty four, less than two hundred and seventeen twenty five. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, like we're looking at a max of about, you know, two to two and a half thousand
2: men. Obviously you mentioned before that the ships were smaller generally than the kind of national naval vessels that they would prey upon. Do you have any idea of like what kind of crew sizes we're talking about?
0: So I do know that I believe like pirate crews would be a lot bigger for the size of ship than a conventional crew would be, mm-hmm. and that consequently they had a lot less la- labor in their day-to-day mm-hmm. responsibilities than you know just a, like a mainstream sailor. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the average is, and I don't know how much that's something that we can reliably estimate, but I know, for example, that like Blackbeard had like 100 sailors, there was another pirate crew I remember being mentioned specifically as having 80. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this math turns out, but Redica said that at peak there would have been roughly about 30 pirate ships active. Okay, Okay. I mean, that makes sense. 30 ships by 80 people would be 2,400. Okay, cool.
1: Good math. Math. (laughs) Um, There's just not that many pirates.
2: I don't know. I think movies have just led me to believe that there are just, like, so many pirates. (laughs) I guess this is the thing where, like, it's good that you're providing this context Mm. of, like, where piracy was and when it was Mm. and, like, what it was. Because, like, I spent a lot of my life, until probably, like, a couple years ago, not really understanding, like, where piracy occurred like i was like whoa where was this happening and like what was Mm. going on and who was doing it yeah who are they doing it against and And when did it happen
1: (laughs) (laughs) especially if you watch a pirate movie obviously a lot of it takes
0: board on a ship you're not like oh i feel geographically grounded here like Mm. i'm just at sea yeah if it helps alice at any given year during the period we're talking about in the kind of the 17. teens and 20s, after the War of Spanish Succession ended anyway, the British Royal Navy only had about 13,000 sailors. Okay, okay. So pirates obviously nowhere near as numerous as those sailors, but still quite a formidable force to try and be combating yeah. in this relatively difficult to keep track of area of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. And I mean, especially because the British Navy doesn't just have to deal with pirates, it has
2: to deal with the Spanish and the Dutch and mm-hmm. the Portuguese and.
0: Whoever they are at war with at the time. Yeah. Yeah. The French, I guess. So Marcus Rediker has constructed a database of 778 pirates about who we have some kind oh. of details, you know, things such as their name, age, previous occupation, and things like that. 774 of these pirates were men, with only four of them being women, this including Anne Bonny and Mary Read, hence this episode being very focused on men. Yeah. From the 169 pirates whose ages we know, we can say that the average age was 28, with three-fifths of pirates being in their 20s. We've missed our moment, Jason. We're too old to be pirates. Well, the overall age range for pirates was between 14 and 50, so you have a good, ah, good long time yet. And this age range roughly reflects the overall age distribution in the labor communities that pirates are originating in. Mm-hmm. So most of them, as you would expect, come from the lower social classes, because that's where most sailors originate, and they'd likely worked these rough sort of maritime jobs their whole lives, leaving them with little hope for a good or honest living on the land, providing another incentive to become pirates. Evidence is not very clear on this, but most pirates seem to have had a few familial ties. Wives and children, for example, are rarely mentioned in trial records, and pirate vessels often didn't take married men to try and prevent desertion. Makes sense. Only 26 of these 778 do we have some evidence that they were married. Mm. Because of the quite transitory nature of their profession, it's quite difficult to say where many of these men originated. Documents like trial records would record a place linked to a pirate, but we have like some kind of place for 348 pirates, so quite a few, but we rarely know the relationship of the pirates to that place, you know, whether it was where they were born, whether it's somewhere that they lived for a little while, whether it's somewhere that they shipped out from once. It is clear that many and perhaps most were from like England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales, with almost half being from England, many from the greater London area, and about a quarter were from the American colony colonies. There are also six Native Americans recorded, hmm. and also pirates from Holland, France, Portugal, Denmark, Belgium, Sweden, and also parts of West Africa, such as modern-day Nigeria, Sierra Leone, and Benin. These like non-British pirates form just 6.9% of the court records, but Redica understands that English courts... We're just not that interested in foreign pirates Mm -hmm. in general, so this is probably a bit of a skewed number. He also describes the numbers of black pirates who originated both as free men and escaped slaves as being particularly difficult to estimate as they were effectively hidden from legal records. Colonial officials often didn't give black pirates a trial, they would instead just sell them into slavery. Mm -hmm. Pirates are, however, regularly referred to as multiracial in contemporary sources. Sam Bellamy's crew, for example, was a mixed multitude of all countries, and it included British, French, Dutch, Spanish, Swedish, Native American, and African men. Black pirates were included in parties that boarded captured ships, indicating that they were trusted and respected members of many crews. Outside observers described pirate ships as sites of social disorder, but Redeker instead understands that these outside observers were witnessing a different social order that they did not understand, and which had been deliberately constructed by pirates in response to their experiences of labour and authority when they were sailors. The structure on pirate ships formed a kind of rough egalitarianism with authority in the hands of the crew. Good, good. I like it. Yeah, I thought you'd have fun with this part. (laughs) (laughs) So each pirate ship would function under a written code, which was agreed upon at the start of their voyage or upon the election of a new captain or just, you know, whenever the crew decided it was time to draw up a new one.
1: I definitely thought that they made up pirate codes for Pirates of the Caribbean. No.
0: No. Cool. <laughs> <They're fine>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do they make up the pirate code. I and, mean, like, the fact that they kind of reference having one shared code in Pirates uh, of the Caribbean.
0: So, like, each crew does draw up its own code, but there is a lot of uniformity and a lot of similarity between them. They're not exactly the same, mm-hmm. but there does seem to be, like, roughly kind of shared of among pirates beyond just the individual ship.
2: Okay, That sounds like it is reasonable <laughs> for one pirate to say to another, hey, like, that goes against the code. And, like, you know, if it's a rule that almost everyone uses, that's a reasonable mm. thing to say.
0: Like what was considered kind of like transgressive or something worthy of punishment within these societies was based just upon like the feeling of the group as a majority. Mm. So mm-hmm. like roughly yeah that does seem a reasonable inference Yeah like you know like obviously
2: all pirates are working in fairly similar environments like they're on a ship doing similar activities because they're all pirates. Yeah. And so, like, you know, the idea that they would come up with fairly similar rule sets Mm.
0: makes Mm -hmm. sense. So, these pirate codes would dictate things like how authority was allocated, how plunder and other resources would be distributed, how discipline would be enforced, and so forth. Under these agreements, pirate captains actually had quite limited authority – Their authority would be unquestioned when they were fighting, if they were chasing a ship, or if they were being chased themselves, but otherwise the ship was governed by a majority rule. Nice. One merchant captain recorded, The captain seems to have no manner of command, but in time of chase or engaging, then he is absolute. Captains were elected by the crew for boldness or skill, and they could easily be deposed if the crew was no longer satisfied with their leadership. While someone was captain, they had relatively few privileges. They didn't receive any more food than the others. They didn't have a private cabin and other pirates could talk and eat with him as they pleased. Pirates would also sleep wherever they felt like on the ship. <laughs> uh, which, given that these ships are holding like more people than they were designed for, creates this delightful sleepover-esque image in my mind, at least. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely how it was. Yeah, for sure.
1: I, mean, I know that a lot of people slept in hammocks on like ships at this time as well, so I feel like that just adds to the
2: like, fun vibe.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: Hammocks are fun, it's true.
1: Yeah. Mm. I don't think I would want to sleep in one every night on the sea, but... Uh... <laughs>
2: yeah i don't know how i'd go with that yeah i don't tend to get seasick but also like that's a much higher bar of do you get seasick than
0: i previously had to encounter yeah i roll over a lot when i sleep which i feel like you just can't be doing on a hammock (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i thought you were just gonna say that you just can't be doing on a ship because you just fall into the ocean (laughs) So obviously all of these sort of circumstances are in quite stark contrast to the systems of the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy. Pirates would also elect a quartermaster who balanced out the powers of the captain and whose responsibilities included things like distributing rations and leading boarding parties onto captured ships. These men would often become captains in their own right at some point in their careers. Both the Quartermaster and the Captain, however, had less authority than the Common Council, which included every man on ship. As Captain Charles Johnson, whose 1724 history of pirates is an important source for the period, put it, they permit him to be captain on condition that they may be captain over him. I can't believe that pirates were more egalitarian than most modern
1: workplaces. Like, we've had 400 years, and what have we learned? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing.
0: <laughs> I guess like the workers have learned this and never forgot it, right? Like we're all trying to unionize and like that's happening a lot lately. And mm. it's really just that those in power have... Not improved morally. Yeah, I mean, I guess these people were
1: acting like these pirates are outside the law and deliberately being like, no, we want to live this different lifestyle. Mm. It's not as authoritarian as, say, the British Navy. Yeah,
2: and like, there were authoritarian regimes trying to take them down. True. Very aggressively.
0: Mm. And which did eventually succeed. Yeah. Decisions on pirate ships were made in open councils that would often feature intense debate. These councils would elect officers, settle disputes, and decide whether to attack particular targets. The decisions that they came to frequently went against the individual wishes of the captains or the quartermasters and they would also decide in these councils how men should be punished and whether prisoners should be released and things like that pirates also had a form of social security so they would put a portion of their plunder to a common fund which provided for men who had sustained serious injuries such as losing a limb Uh, yeah i guess i will state that a lot of this like there are debates about various aspects of this amongst pirate historians as you would expect and I'm not going to get into a lot of those debates because like this is kind of just background to our main topic but like you know you can certainly kind of quibble with elements of this if you are so inclined mm-hmm. so as i mentioned pirate codes also regulated discipline depending on this kind of collective sense that some kind of transgression had been made a quarrel might be resolved by a duel first with pistols, and then if both missed their shot, they would fight with swords to first blood. Men who were extremely disruptive could also be marooned, so for crimes such as taking more than their fair share of plunder, deserting, malingering, keeping secrets from the crew. Obviously, marooning is very different in severity depending on where you're marooned. So, you know, that, I guess, is decided on the basis of the severity of their crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: Yeah, whether you're marooned on, like an inhabited island or...
0: Yeah, whether like... you're left on, like, a little strip of land with nothing on it or on, like, Jamaica. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could also sometimes be executed. In 1722, two members of Bartholomew Robert's crew were charged with desertion and each was allowed to select their own executioner before they were tied to the mast and shot.
1: I don't think I would want to select my own executioner if I was being executed. I don't think we should go into this in too much detail. It just struck
0: me as, like, an odd detail that they allowed that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I wanted to kind of temper this, like, fun view of pirates is a giant sleepover where we're all just hanging out being best friends a little bit. Yeah. yeah. On another incident, deserters were whipped twice by each member of the crew. It's a lot of whipping when you consider these crews might yeah. have eighty people. Yeah, some of the like sentences of lashes that you hear at this time from like the Navy just blow my mind. Like there were men who were sentenced to like five hundred or a thousand lashes. Doesn't that mm. just kill a man? I would assume yes. Pirate crews were also notable for their intense enjoyment of food and drink, and many observers noted this sort of carnival atmosphere on board pirate ships. William Snellgrave, his... (laughs) (laughs) ...noted the unrestrained ways that they would take alcohol from prize vessels. When they drank bottled liquor, they would not draw the cork out, but strike the top of the bottles off with a sword. What?! (laughs) He also described them hoisting barrels of claret and brandy from below decks and dipping cans and bowls in them to drink out of. When these barrels were emptied, they'd haul more up and they ended up throwing buckets of claret and brandy at each other and by the end of the day, washing the decks with what was left. <laughs> I guess if you're like alcohol is coming in such like, rather than having a steady stream of mm. alcohol,
1: these guys are going to have like a huge glut of alcohol. Yeah. And then no alcohol. Yeah. So you can see how this happens once mm. you start drinking a huge glut of alcohol. Yeah. So this is a lot of fun, obviously. It still sounds like a fun party sleepover situation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: But we can take a bit of a more somber view of the relationship of pirates to alcohol. Mm. Uh, Drunkenness could sometimes lead to fights, occasionally ones that engulfed the entire crew. Pirate Captain Sam Bellamy's crew once got so drunk that they ran their ship ashore. (gasps) It also meant that they were sometimes not battle ready and could be surprised and potentially captured. I guess the thing with having, like, a pawn up on a ship is that once you all get involved, there's no way you can be like, okay, we're all just going to walk away and cool off. Like, mm. you're just stuck on that ship together. <sighs> this almost frantic enjoyment of physical pleasures, like eating and drinking, is also understood by Marcus Redeker as a reaction against the circumstances of their lives prior to piracy, as well as an awareness that they would probably not live very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, redica estimates that roughly 10 percent of pirates were hanged and many others died in situations such as in battle in prison due to accident and so forth and he estimates between 25 and 50 percent died some sort of premature death Mm -hmm. Uh, most of them were only pirates for like a year or two at most yeah i mean being at sea at
2: this time not a fun time Mm. like You just, you're going to get scurvy, you're going to get some kind of disease, Mm. like, it's just not going to be good.
0: It seems, from that context then, that they were determined to enjoy what time they did have to the fullest. This is articulated in a famous quote from Bartholomew Roberts, who remarked that, "...in an honest service there is thin commons, low wages, and hard labour. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power... And who would not balance credit on this side when all the hazard that is run for it at worst is only a sour look or two at choking. No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. That was very eloquent. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very powerful quote. Yeah. Relevant to this worldview is the most recognizable symbol of piracy, the famous flag, the Jolly Roger, which two and a half thousand men are estimated to have sailed under some form of. This flag varied from ship to ship, but it was usually black and it featured elements such as a skull or skeleton, a weapon such as a sword or a spear and an hourglass. These flags were intended to frighten their prey and their motifs are evocative of important themes of pirate life, death, violence, and limited time. (laughs)
2: So, like, obviously the skull and the crossbones and the cross swords is, like, very, very common in media. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen media use the hourglass.
0: No, well, they're, like, quite cool flags. I guess we'll post some of them on social media. But, yeah, there's often, like, a full skeleton who's, like, holding a spear, stabbing a heart, and there'll be an hourglass next to it. Which, like, I guess, I get that, like, listing the hourglass sounds funny, but I think in the full image, they're quite, like, powerful Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that,
2: that could be quite cool. It's just, like, yeah, it's interesting that like mm. that is the one element that most adaptations choose to ignore
0: so obviously most adaptations go just with the skull and crossbones and mm. i think there's only like one or two examples of that like mostly it was a full skeleton i, mm. think, I think more often at least than the skull and crossbones
2: yeah because we see in our flag means death you get the full skeleton in a few of the flags
1: oh, yeah, i have the little flag design session in the first episode
0: yeah. yeah i'll have to look back at that now that i've you know kind of done some research and look at the flags so that's kind of all the background i wanted to give to just give us a bit of an understanding of when and where we are and who these people are that we're about to start you know seeing if they're gay or not (laughs) (laughs) the real reason we're here today yes so of these
2: 2500 men yeah (laughs) eli tell me exactly how many
0: (laughs) well so i would say like well way more than you know Two and a half thousand. There's just two and a half thousand like active at one time. Oh, true, true, true. Yeah.
2: And Yeah, if most of them only lasted a year or two. Oh, yeah. There's
0: yeah. actually a lot of men kind of going through the trade. Yeah, 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 yeah. So pirates have gained quite a reputation for queerness in recent years, at least in queer circles. But I, I think kind of a little bit in the mainstream as well. I was kind of looking at newspaper articles about this, and it's not limited to queer publications that claims will be made of how gay pirates are. The Gay Star News... Published an article that claims piracy was a world apart and one where homosexual couples may have been the norm, not the exception. And the online lifestyle magazine, Mel Magazine, wrote that persecuted on land for who they loved, pirates took to the sea to form floating colonies of homosexual freedom. <laughs> That was an incredible sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Please, is it true? So these articles reflect a popular conception that not only did individual queer pirates exist, but Mm -hmm. so did a queer pirate culture in which same-sex relationships were normalized and accepted. And I understand the appeal of that, like like a lot of what I've been reading here that paints a picture of this world that is very tantalizing and very exciting. But yes, is it true? (laughs) (laughs) So... Many of these claims cite a book called Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition by B. R. Berg, which has been the major text in studies of pirate homosexuality since its publication in 1983. It is almost universally mentioned by academics addressing this subject as well, however briefly, but these mentions generally include disclaimers about the quality of Berg's work, and it is commonly understood that the conclusions he draws cannot be sustained. So, a lot of this next part is going to involve a discussion of Berg's book because it is the the kind of major one about this topic. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to tell you the major points of his overall thesis in the book briefly, and then we're going to come back to some of those points more in depth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Berg states that homosexuality was not particularly frowned upon in 17th and early 18th century England. He states, For the most part, Englishmen regarded homosexual behaviour as simply another sexual activity, a peculiarity to some, a matter of jest to others, a thing for public cognizance when circumstances warranted, but mostly a practice to be ignored. Wasn't it illegal at that time? I will come back. Please allow me to summarize the thesis. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> this lack of condemnation meant that sex between men was fairly common, according to Berg, and it was especially so for men in the navy or on pirate ships who had few opportunities for sex with women. The result was that in these environments, homosexuality was normalised and openly practised. So you can very much see the germ of the online articles and things in that statement. So yeah, let's start with Berg's claim that 17th and early 18th century England had fairly relaxed attitudes towards homosexuality. So, I want to first note that Berg is quite inconsistent in how he describes these attitudes. He sometimes says, for example, very broadly, that homosexuality was acceptable in contemporary England, and elsewhere he says that pirates were free to practice it because they were outside of a society that was unsympathetic to it. You know, which is it? Yeah, those are contradictory views. Sometimes Berg also seems to be comparing the 17th century with a hypothetical extreme of homophobia, and sometimes he compares it to specific other time periods, including his own. So he says, for example, 17th century Englishmen on all status levels were remarkably indulgent with homosexuality, at least when judged by the attitudes of their Victorian and 20th century counterparts. So I do think that it is worth examining, as I think Berg kind of forces us to do, this common preconception that until recently intense homophobia has been a constant that we've made gradual linear progress in overcoming. But the assertion that 1983 was more homophobic than 1683 (laughs) is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He supports this claim through quite a long series of examples. So we're going to talk about some of them. Most of them I don't feel actually really support his statement at all. (laughs) Okay, that's a bad start. (laughs) So he spends quite a long time doing this. I'm going to just go through a couple. If you Mm -hmm. want to hear his argument more in full, you can obviously track down the book. But for example, he refers to the Buggery Act of 1533, passed during the reign of Henry VIII, which made buggery a civil crime rather than one that was handled by the ecclesiastical courts. So the act included buggery committed with mankind or beast, and it does not otherwise define it, but it certainly included sex between men men in addition to other sexual crimes such as bestiality. Berg uses the term buggery fairly interchangeably with terms such as sodomy, homosexual acts and things like that, so you're going to see a lot of that language used interchangeably here. Berg understands this to be the result of a struggle for power between church and secular authority rather than reflective of a growing concern with these sexual activities inherently. Mm -hmm. This is an opinion that is held by other scholars as well. It's supported by the fact that the Act was repealed during the reign of Mary, who was aiming to restore power to the Catholic Church, and that it was re-enacted by Elizabeth I in 1562. However, the influence of political factors does not mean that this is not indicative of a general negative view of buggery in society, and this is reflected by the language of the 1533 Act, which described it as a detestable and abominable vice.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, something is political because that reflects something about society. Like, politics is not this, like, completely extra Mm. thing that Mm -hmm. doesn't have anything to do with how people think.
0: This is kind of what I mean when I say that he sometimes holds these examples up against a hypothetical extreme of homophobia, where he sort of seems to imply, like, well, it's not as if they're, you know, just constantly concerned about this to the exclusion of all other things they're not like setting up witch hunts for you know gay men so it's fine it doesn't indicate homophobia and i'm like well <laughs> They do have a law to describe it as a detestable crime. Yeah, you know. I, I, I just don't think that that's a particularly compelling argument. Although capital punishment was possible under the Act, the more common sentence for men convicted of buggery was the pillory. In July of 1719, a man named William Holbrook was pilloried for attempted sodomy with another man named Thomas Pendrill. Is pillory the stocks? Where they, like,
1: put your hands and your head in that wooden thing?
0: Yeah, they put your hand and your head in that wooden thing, and then you stand there and get, like berated by the public for a period of several hours or whatever and that's very rotten fruit at you yeah.
2: yeah yeah okay i would like to know and
0: you're not going to be able to answer this question okay
2: if uh this william holbrook has any relation to the town of holbrook where
0: there is a submarine in
1: like rural new south wales
0: <laughs> indeed i have no idea you're perfectly able to you know research that and come back to the class <laughs>
1: <laughs> can't help but notice this is another man named william yes i told you there'd be another one
0: (laughs) anyway so william was pilloried because he attempted to have sex with thomas applebees which is a contemporary newspaper reported that the mob had certainly murdered him could they have got him in their power for a hackney coach was torn to pieces that took him up to carry him to newgate berg says that this seems like the mob was severely offended by holbrook's sodomy but that it needn't be read that way and that mobs could be incited to violence at little provocation
1: Sometimes a guy is arrested for having gay sex and then torn apart by a mob, and it's not homophobic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's he's not torn apart, though. That's true. They they only wanted to tear (laughs) him apart. Berg notes that the crowds threw rotten eggs and cucumbers at William, meaning that they were not trying to kill him because sometimes people threw rocks, and therefore that their reaction was more amusement than rage. (laughs) (laughs) That's still homophobic. (laughs) Yeah, that's still homophobic. As with the acts, like, yes, this is less severe than it could have been, but it still indicates an animosity Against men who were convicted of buggery. Yeah. Like, yeah, basically, my response to Berg comes down to okay, but that's still homophobic. Yeah, it could have been
1: worse. But if you can be arrested for being gay and then you're like attacked and harassed in the street, your society's homophobic.
0: Yes. It's not yeah. controversial. I think we're all in agreement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is the sort of evidence that Berg continues to provide for his understanding of there being relatively mild attitudes to homosexuality, which he argues would have made it prevalent and the norm for many Englishmen, saying, where homosexual acts are admired or even approved, they tend to be more prevalent than where there are severe strictures against them, and there is no reason to suppose England of three centuries past was an exception. This is just not supportable.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty insane, like, series of steps he's taken.
0: Would you like to hear more steps he's taken? Sure, let's continue (laughs) on these rickety steps.
2: (sighs) Made of straw, one might say. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Berg also understands that gay sex was common and normalized on English naval vessels at the time, claiming that most sailors had sex with other men because sodomy was not generally condemned and they had no access to women. He understands it to have been such a prevailing norm that men who were otherwise disinterested in gay sex were effectively made gay by being in the Navy, (laughs) saying heterosexuals had a choice between sodomy or abstinence, but their choice was influenced not only by their having grown to adolescence or adulthood, in a society that did not rigorously condemn homosexual conduct, but also by the fact that many of the men aboard were homosexuals. I'm just feeling annoyed listening to this. you didn't have to read the whole book, Alice. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: Just being like, you know, these sailors grew up in this really accepting society and would have had no problems with being gay when we just saw men being arrested for being gay in the society. It's like, how are you thinking this means what you're saying it means?
2: Yeah, being pelted with eggs is just a normal part of life.
1: That's actually a sign of goodwill. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah this is bad (laughs) there is a certain degree to which i do wonder how this read in the 1980s which obviously was a much more intensely homophobic time than now Mm. you know like potentially to some degree you read these things in the 1980s and you're just like "Eh, it doesn't seem that bad to me Mm. and i don't want to discredit that there are a lot of other things that do kind of indicate how strongly it was influenced by being written at the time it was written that i I have not gone into for time reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I, I still think nevertheless, despite that, his conclusions don't really hold. Obviously, a certain amount of sex between men did happen on naval ships, either because of preference or because of the situation, but this just doesn't prove normalization and Berg does not really provide evidence for his claims. Arthur Gilbert, who published a paper entitled Buggery and the British Navy, 1700 to 1861, understands that there was intense disapproval of homosexuality in the Navy and that this reflected social disapproval more generally. Although it's difficult to state the frequency of sex between men in the Navy, we can comment on what happened to those who stood trial. Mm -hmm. There was at times a reluctance to convict in these cases, often based on the difficulty of what constituted proof that sex had happened. But nevertheless, it was clearly treated as a serious offence. Between 1703 and 1710, for example, six of the 12 sailors tried for buggery or attempted buggery were hanged. These executions Mm. made up 27% of the 22 death sentences in the Navy during this time, the others being for desertion, murder, and mutiny.
2: Okay. Yeah, so uh, that's the level... Of crime this was considered as. Yeah. Those are four major crimes and it constituted a quarter of the executions. Like, yeah, I just don't think Berg's assertion like hold any water in comparison to that.
0: It was actually kind of quite quite upsetting to read at times Mm. because it kind of did essentially constitute like evidence of that kind. And then him just being like, but that's no big deal repeatedly. Mm. And I know that that's not his intent. Mm. Like you don't write a book about pirate homosexuality in the 80s if you're not sympathetic to gay men to some degree, right? Yeah. Like, mm. But yeah, it was yeah, not a good time. Burke's book relies very heavily on a comparison between naval and pirate ships and modern day prisons to prove his understanding of common situational homosexuality. Prison populations are one of the only single-sex groups that we've been able to study for an extended period of time, and Berg cites studies that indicate that inmates in male prisons engaged in homosexual sex at a rate of 35 to 40%. Okay. As pirates are also functionally in an all-male group, we might presume that there was a similar rate on pirate ships, is effectively his argument. Now, to his credit, Berg acknowledges that the conditions between these two environments are not identical. But he does so to argue that there would have likely been more sex between pirates and between male prisoners because the conditions would have been more favorable for it. So male prisoners... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jason's just made quite a face at me. (laughs) (laughs) So, male prisoners were regulated or are, I suppose, regulated by outside authority, which was hostile to them having sex with each other, they had little privacy, there's few opportunities for social situations such as parties, and Berg argues that these conditions did not prevail on pirate ships, although he does note that pirates had quite a poor diet and quite a high level of monotony, which would have led presumably to less interest in sex. As noted by Edward Fox in his PhD thesis on pirate codes and societies, this comparison is faulty. Many prisoners are incarcerated for months or years, whereas pirates are generally away from shore for a period of days or weeks or occasionally months. Although not all of these shore visits included the possibility of having sex with a woman, pirates who desired to have sex with women did not have the stretch of years without that possibility that male prisoners do. Mm-hmm. Additionally, as already noted, the statement that there is a lack of disapproving authority rests on Berg's understanding that homosexuality was acceptable within the society, which he still has not demonstrated. Berg acknowledges that this type of comparison is quite overused by historians, and frequently notes that we can only formulate a hypothesis on their basis, not conclude anything. But he then does rely on his conclusions from this method as if they were fact. (sighs)
1: classic thing that you see people do where they're like so obviously we have to acknowledge all these flaws and like how i'm getting to this conclusion but once they reach the conclusion that it's like not this is
0: it it's very easy to do yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, it is something that like i'm currently writing a thesis and you know have to constantly check myself against doing and i'm not Mm -hmm. even doing comparative historiography which is perhaps yeah as yeah himself acknowledges somewhere you have to be particularly careful
2: yeah my face was very much about the idea that you just raised that like Obviously, pirates got to go on shore.
1: Yeah. Fundamentally <laughs> different to being in prison.
2: Yeah. Not just from a practical point of view, but also from a mindset point of view. Yeah. Like, yeah. You might end up at sea for a few months, but like you don't necessarily think that when you start the voyage. You're not going to be like, ah, oh, well,
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're in it now. He also makes the argument that various, you know, kind of like small island colonies at the time were also largely men. And so he has a statement where he's like, you know, if these pirates really wanted to have sex with women, they could have turned the boat around and just sailed to England, but they didn't, did they? And <laughs> <laughs> actors proves they were gay. Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Due to his reliance on these comparisons to prisons rather than on historical evidence, Berg even claims that he is not writing a history book at all, saying, the use of a subject population from the 17th century makes it appear, at least initially, that sodomy in the pirate tradition is a historical work. That did appear to be the case, yeah. (laughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. End quote, to be clear, he said that. (laughs) He elaborates on how his methods differ from those of historians, chiefly because he uses methods from sociology, psychology, and other social sciences. He says, It is simply not history. It utilizes the past but does not deal with it. What does that mean? Berg suggests alternatively that his work be called Interdisciplinary Sociology or Speculative Social Science, but be that as it may, Berg does spend long passages of the book providing historical context and examples, however flawed, and he's doing so to form conclusions about a historical community. That's what history is. So his assertion is frankly baffling and presumably indicates awareness of the weakness of his arguments. <laughs> frankly, I think that's fair mm. He's
1: statement. like, mm, my history book isn't very good. No, 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 guys, this is sociology. It doesn't have to be good history is fine what was that thing he said he uses the past but he doesn't deal with the
2: past yes what i don't know what
1: does that mean i don't
2: know and i mean yeah like obviously regardless of his intent you know this book has been widely used as a source Mm. for Mm -hmm. facts that are not
1: yeah it's obviously being used as a history book yeah
0: because i mean it is a history book like i'm sorry but it is (laughs) Fox, whose PhD thesis I mentioned earlier, notes that despite dedicating an entire book to the subject, Berg is unable to give one unambiguous piece of evidence for sex between two men on a pirate ship. I would say that Berg's book ultimately cannot tell us anything about homosexuality in pirate communities. That's very disappointing. Yes. Imagine my panic at this juncture. Of the research.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, cool, I'll just read
0: that book about gay pirates and that'll be the episode. There's no gay pirates here. Yeah. That Uh, is really
2: unfortunate, my friend.
0: Yeah, it is. So despite this, the suggestion that some amount of sex between men, whether situational or due to genuine preference, occurred among pirates is difficult to dismiss, particularly Mm. given that we know such encounters happened in the Navy. And again, we are talking about a group of, you know, several thousand people. Yeah, Mm. like some of them just must have been gay. Yeah. Or, you know, just gave it a go once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few more sources that I would like to discuss that give us some kind of potential evidence for this. Let's grasp at some straw. <laughs> <laughs> One of the sources that we've already discussed for how to understand pirate societies is pirate codes. The only pirate code that potentially says anything about homosexuality is Captain Roberts, which includes the stipulation no boy or woman to be allowed amongst them. If any man were to be found seducing any of the latter sex and carried her to sea disguised, he was to suffer death. So such prohibitions against women being on board are found in multiple pirate codes, and they're generally understood to have existed in order to preserve social cohesion amongst the crew. mm <laughs> Uh, You know, if one of your buddies has their girlfriend there, but most people don't get a girlfriend, then people might be sad (laughs) and hit each other. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say
1: sad is a very nice word putting (laughs) what might happen.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there might be conflict, and we've
2: already discussed how that conflict can lead to poor outcomes for your pirate vessel.
0: Robert's is unique in including a prohibition against boys as well. Now, Berg reads this as reflecting that boys were commonly sexual partners, but that not everyone accepted this because, like the presence of women, boys could cause conflict. This reading, that pederasty was common enough to require legislating, is not unique to Berg, and it does make some degree of sense, I think. The connection of boys with women and the prohibition of the latter for sexual reasons clearly does allow for a reading that boys Mm. were also prohibited on sexual grounds. Yeah. However, Roberts' articles do not refer unambiguously to homosexuality, and nowhere do they spell out the reason that boys are prohibited from pirate ships. You know, they don't say Mm. that this is for sexual reasons. They don't say that these boys have sexual appeal to the men who met up the crew, as they do with the prohibition of women. Fox suggests that it might be instead an issue of only allowing those who are viewed as being able to do their share of the labor on a ship where resources of space, food, and water were quite sparse. I don't think you can really prove that that one's the case, but I do think that that also makes a degree of sense.
1: Yeah. Look, I think the fact that it is right there with like boys and women suggests that they're kind of thinking of them in the one category, but because they don't specify anything about sex with boys, like Mm. we just can't say.
0: Yeah. And like that category could just be, Types of people who aren't allowed on board.
1: Yeah. Or people who can't do the manual labor necessary to be on a pirate ship. Obviously, that's
0: sexist, but you know. Yeah, but like pirates were sexist. Pirates would have been sexist, actually. Other pirate codes did not address the question of boys, indicating that they didn't find them to be distracting or divisive on other ships. Several other crews are known to have had boys on board as part of their crews, and there's no evidence of this kind of causing any disharmony, or if there being a sexual connection between those boys and members of the crew. Robert's crew, although it legislated against this, actually did include at least one boy. So when we
1: say boy here, do you just mean like person under 18?
0: Yeah, I- I'm assuming they're kind of teens. Obviously, like no one's telling me a specific age range in these yeah. sources. But yeah, like I think that's kind of roughly what we're picturing there. Fox argues on the basis of all this that they were not therefore considered in the same way as women. Their presence was not generally seen in any kind of sexual light and there is no reason to conclude that pederasty was more rife amongst pirates than in any other contemporary group of men. Mm -hmm. Robert's articles are only, at most, evidence for attitudes towards pederasty, not towards sex between adult men, obviously. No pirate code addresses this, however ambiguously, and we have to therefore, I think, conclude that pirates simply did not think that that was worth legislating about. This is either because it didn't happen often or, you know, openly often enough to be commented on, or it did happen and pirates just didn't think it was a problem. Trying to figure out which one is not easy Mm -hmm. Uh, because the evidence that we have about this is quite rare and quite unclear so for example something that's mentioned in a few of the sources i looked at was an incident between john wilson who is described in the trial record that is our source as a forced man so like a captive doing work on this pirate ship for a bit i guess and thomas powell who was a gunner in charles harris's crew the two of them were alone together up on the mast and thomas said i wish you and i were both ashore here stark naked It's pretty gay, Tom. Yeah, so like, what is meant by this comment is a bit unclear. We can understand this as an expression of sexual desire, potentially. How do we know that Thomas said this? It was reported, I guess, by John Wilson in the trial for this crew.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the whole crew is on trial here for being pirates. This is not anything to do with gay sex this trial
0: no no no, no it's okay, not if, cool. if one of the pirates was put on trial for gay sex i would have told you <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> that would be more than a crumb yes yeah. yeah yeah so like we can take this as an indication of sexual desire potentially but it is i think quite ambiguous and it doesn't tell us anything about the overall culture on board pirate ships towards homosexuality
1: when you say it's quite ambiguous how else would you interpret it
0: I don't know. It's not really given any context. And so I think assuming that Thomas and John were lovers is a bit much.
1: Yeah, no, I
2: wouldn't assume from that they were lovers, but I would assume from that that Tom was hitting on John. What
0: I would say is
2: I think that statement obviously has sexual connotations, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything about the attraction between those two men. Like, you know, straight men make lewd comments to other straight men all the time. That's true too.
1: Yeah, and I think um, the point you made, Eli, that, like, that doesn't tell us anything about the culture on the ship is very valid. And, like, without knowing the culture on the ship, we can't interpret that comment.
2: Yeah, and I guess that also doesn't necessarily say anything about how pirates interact with each other, either. Again, this is all speculation, but mm, so mm-hmm. is a lot of what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, it could be the case that it's, you know, reasonably acceptable for you to go off and hit on whoever you want outside of the pirate crew. Yeah, uh,
0: that's actually quite a good point. Like, that's
2: obviously a fairly common thing in kind of a common workplace practice (laughs) Um...
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i think like you raise a good point both about how it's speculative and in your analysis of a potential way of understanding that situation like first of all that because we don't know anything it's difficult to make anything of this interaction and second of all yeah he could quite well be hitting on john because john is outside of the pirate crew proper
2: and yeah obviously it could be reflective of you know that pirate being gay and hitting on this man and you know maybe he slept with some other pirates at various points i mean probably not on that ship otherwise he wouldn't have been hitting on this guy
0: (laughs) Um. (laughs) i like the sheer monogamy of pirates you just introduced (laughs) (laughs) i guess also what we can mention is that they are upper mast so they are in relative privacy Mm. yeah Mm. yeah which also i think like, is a thing that you could read in various ways? Is that hmm. just incidental? Is that something that Thomas, you know, waited for a moment where they were alone to try and hit on this guy because it was something that was not socially acceptable is it just that maybe when you try to have sex with someone you want some privacy (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah yeah. these are the kind of ambiguities that i think are a play with these sorts of sources
1: yeah and with only this one example like if we had 50 examples of here's some ways that pirates hit on people we could probably form an image but we've got this one guy
2: so we Mm. just know nothing yeah if we had like you know from the testimony And the court records, if we had, like, 20 different things of, like, hmm, that's a little gay. Yeah. Mm. That'd be a lot of gay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We do have a couple others, so we can try and form some kind of image. Yeah. So another relevant incident occurred in 1680 and was recorded by the English pirate Basil Ringrose. Basil wrote in his journal on January 7th, That William Cook, servant unto Captain Edmund Cook, confessed that his master had oft times buggered him in England, leaving his wife and coming to bed to him, the said William. That the same crime he had also perpetrated in Jamaica, and once in these seas before Panama. Moreover, searching his writings, we found a paper with all our names written in it, which it was suspected he designed to have given unto the Spanish prisoners. For these reasons, this evening our captain thought it was convenient to put him in irons, which was accordingly done." So this is complicated by the fact that this is playing out against the background of a power struggle for Captain, Edmund mm-hmm. Cook being one of the men who wanted to become Captain. But I think it is reasonable to conclude that this alleged buggery probably happened.
1: Yeah. The uh, details are very
0: specific for something that didn't occur. Yes. And I think that it is also obviously indicative of a negative attitude on that ship towards that. Yes, Like, it's possible that he is locked up because the allegation was that he had raped his servant as opposed to just had sex with him but that's not indicated anywhere in the quote
1: yeah i think it like you could read it that way but the language is ambiguous
2: yeah you can speculate that it's entirely about the power struggle and this is just kind of like a convenient excuse Mm. or whatever you can speculate that it's just homophobia and you can speculate that it's about like consent and sexual yeah, assault yeah obviously in both of those first two scenarios there's a degree of homophobia because if even if it's like a political power struggle again mm. politics is reflected yeah. the people mm. and so if you can use that as a tool to win your power struggle for captain that means that at least some of the people on the boat are
0: homophobic
1: yeah you don't bring up gay sex in your power struggle unless that's like digging up dirt on a person
0: yeah mm. So, there were also many pamphlets which were written by clergymen and others denouncing pirates and specifying their various types of sinful behaviour, often in quite detailed lists. However, these rarely, if ever, include any mention of homosexuality. The best example that Fox was able to find is Cotton Mather's reference to the abominable sin of uncleanliness, which is sometimes a reference to homosexual sex, but can also indicate, for example, sex out of wedlock, Ah, oh, yeah. In this context, it isn't even specifically an accusation leveled against a pirate. It's just one of a list of sins to be generally avoided by readers. <laughs>
1: So uh, we really can't say that this means pirates were gay. It's just a priest being like,
0: don't have bad sex, kids. Yes.
2: Just don't.
0: <laughs> it is odd that these kind of pamphlets would not mention homosexuality mm. if it was a marked behavior of yeah. pirates. You know, we also have a lot of testimonies, some of which we've been using as evidence throughout this episode, uh, from people who were held captive by pirates. And there's no mention of homosexuality in any of these accounts. So Fox concludes that homosexuality either did not exist or only occurred in secret on pirate ships which again is indicative of a culture that would not view it as generally acceptable or yeah. norm.
1: so they're not yeah. these floating gay islands that
0: that article described i don't think so
2: yeah i mean it sounds like the best case scenario here is that gay sex on pirate ships is about as common as it was just generally mm. in mm. that time mm. period
1: yeah have you got like one little gay tip that you saved up for the end
0: can we have a treat <laughs> No. Okay. I would be lying if I was going to say that. I have a treat for you now. I tried really hard. I hate this episode.
1: (laughs) It's all about straight pirates.
2: Uh, It's all right. The meteor episode will save us.
1: Yeah, Yeah. we can consider this background to the meteor episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not just a standalone,
0: straight episode. (laughs) So I wanted to finish up by talking about Matelotage, which is often referred to as like pirate gay marriage, occasionally by scholars, often by people who are interested in queer history on the internet. And I just want to state right off the bat that sources for this are quite difficult to find. It looms very large in conversations, both academic and not, of people who are interested in pirates being gay. But yeah, like the sources, unfortunately, are not as rich as that folk would suggest suggest, or you know we would hope they would be Mm -hmm. so this is a custom that originated in the early 17th century among buccaneers buccaneers uh, is a word that refers originally to a group of hunters of wild cattle and pigs on hispaniola or modern-day haiti in the dominican republic who eventually became pirates instead buccaneers formed partnerships called metellatages, wherein two men would agree to pull their belongings and to protect each other. And this is especially associated with buccaneers because of this origin, but it appears in broader pirate culture as well. I will also to say, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I heard <laughs> other people pronounce it like that. I decided to do it. I actually initially went like mate lotage because I'm Australian. That's it definitely- has the word mate at the front. <laughs> but I've just bowed to like other random podcasters, basically.
2: <laughs> G- G'day. Would you like to be mate alotage with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, well, now we are.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like we it's are. It's done.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you do share your resources.
0: Yeah. I would protect you if such a need arose. And same to you. Thank you. Do you want to have a written agreement about it that we sign? Isn't that our lead? <laughs> oh, you're true. Yeah. <laughs> our landlord's
2: not going to friggin' do it. <laughs>
0: The French writer Alexander Exquemelin, who spent time among the buccaneers, wrote, It is a general and solemn custom amongst them all to seek out for a comrade or companion whom we may call partner in their fortunes with whom they join the whole stock of what they possess towards a mutual and reciprocal gain. This is done also by articles drawn and signed on both sides, according to what has been agreed between them. Some of these constitute their surviving companion absolute heir to what is left by the death of the first of the two. Others, if they be married, leave their estates to their wives and children, others to other relations.
1: Okay, this sounds somewhat like marriage.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna talk about the evidence for this. I don't so much plan to, although you can, you know, obviously you are both free to do as you want, get into like what constitutes a marriage. Mm. That's fair. I mean, we don't really know what marriage is today in the twenty first century. How are we mm. gonna figure out what it was in the seventeen hundreds? Yeah. Like I do think that even if we ultimately decided this is not marriage, that it is a good way to discuss how we constitute what a marriage is currently and historically. But you know, you can all do that in your own time. It's a fun little (laughs) extracurricular activity. (laughs) So the sharing of property is a key component, as we've seen there, of matelotage. And when one of the pair died, the other would commonly inherit their possessions. We have, for example, a written agreement between two men, Francis Hood and John Beavis, signed in Madagascar in 1699, designating that their possessions should go to the other if they died at sea. Um, So part of the function of Matelotage then is clearly this risk-sharing economic contract, Mm -hmm. basically. Marriage is also an economic contract to some degree. (laughs) It also seems clear that these partnerships often included an intense loyalty and an intense emotional connection. A French missionary living on the Antilles in the mid-17th century recorded the practice of Matelotage. He wrote, There are two kinds of families on the islands. The first are composed of married persons and the others of certain bachelors who live together, which they call Matelotage in the usage of this place. He described how they would have joint ownership of their property, and when one of them got married, they would divide it and separate. He says, quote, previously they did not even separate, and the one who was not married continued to live with his mate But the jealousy that entered the land and the unfortunate accidents that arose from the indiscretion of the matelote or from the imprudence of the woman obliged the governors to forbid this practice.
1: So they used to, you would get married and you and your wife and your matelote would all be one household. And then they were like, this is causing too much conflict. We need to stop this practice. Yes. Okay. Look, I think there's a lot of potential for this to be pretty gay. Yeah, I agree. That sounds pretty gay. He's like, so we've got the heterosexual families and we've got the gay families. And he's like evidence that there's jealousy. Like if- one of these men who's got a mate is marrying a woman, there's jealousy there from the other man. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds pretty gay.
2: I will say, I, you know, I agree with that analysis, Alice, although this also does remind me of a conversation we were having earlier mm. today about which member of the Fellowship would be the best to be married to. Where is this coming? <laughs> and the idea that being married to Mary would not be ideal because Pippin would be around all the time. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. Married and
2: monopolizing and <laughs> Mary's attention. And I think, you know, that is another reason to be jealous, like, that still occurs in the modern day to actually get back to a semi Serious argument. Sure. That, you know, like <laughs> when heterosexual couples get married often they end up being jealous of the time that one partner is spending with their best friend mm. and that doesn't necessarily mean anything about the sexual or romantic nature of that relationship with the friend i'm playing devil's advocate here to some mm. extent no but like um, your
1: point is valid like i was saying oh there's jealousy therefore it's gay but like you can be jealous of a relationship that is different to the relationship that you have like just because you're like in a romantic relationship with someone and jealous of somebody else they're close to doesn't inherently mean that other relationship is romantic.
0: I think it's also worth pointing out, actually I have two things to say. First of all, that I was also thinking of bringing up Lord of the Rings because I was thinking about the (laughs) thing where Rosie and Sam just moving with Frodo is basically just this. yeah. (laughs) Someone should write a, like, pirate AU of that. Second of all, an actual serious comment uh, (laughs) is that I think it is worth now kind of considering the question of, like, what would make these pirates queer. This episode has been very focused because Berg is very focused and so are a lot of the other scholars who comment on this on sex. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously sex is not necessary for a relationship to be queer. And I think this metellatage situation is the best indication of something that we could potentially call queer, not because probably these pirates on the Antilles were having sex with each other. Well, these aren't pirates, but you know, these people on the Antilles were having sex with each other. But because this is like a social structure where there's two kinds of families in society, the ones with a man and his wife and the one with these two men, like it's kind of this alternate social structure. I was
1: thinking when you asked that question about a comparison with an episode we did a while ago, which was the golden orchid societies in China. And we kind of talked about how the women in those societies, some of them were married to men, but had this really strong like social and economic commitment to other women. Some of them might've been lesbian. Some of them might've been asexual or aromantic. Like it's not like this is inherently queer, but it's a space where there's a lot of, like, opportunity for queer Mm. people to live lives that more suit how they want to live. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing. Like, you know, some of these men may have been intensely heterosexual men, but it's definitely a space within this culture where queer men could live as queer men.
0: Yeah, and And I think
2: that's kind of the best we can do. And it's also, you know the nature of these relationships sounds like something where if you put that relationship into a different social context Mm. in the same historical time period like or like you know in this case a missionary comes along and is kind of (laughs) like
0: what's going on here what's
2: going on with this like you know that would be considered weird or might be considered inappropriate or might
0: be considered queer yeah yeah so we kind of jumped to like the end analysis of what i was basically going to say but I do have some more examples of, like, Mattelatage. Oh, yeah. If you would like to hear them. Please, go on. Because uh, that example wasn't from pirates, was it? The example on the Antilles, I don't think are pirates. It's just in the area. Oh, interesting. And it is okay. called Mattelatage by this guy, so mm-hmm. it's, like, relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's, like, spread. Or maybe some of these people are, like, ex-buccaneers.
1: I do find it kinda of funny to think of like just the guys on like Hispaniola just came up with gay marriage to, you know, just grossly generalise all our analysis and yeah, then sure. everyone else in the area was like, Oh, those guys are onto something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I can give you some other examples. Berg provides Various other examples of this emotional intensity in the context of Matelotage. So, for example, Captain Bartholomew Roberts one day killed a member of his crew who had insulted him. And a lot of people objected to this, but especially a man named Jones, who was a brisk, active young man who died later in the Marshall Sea and was his messmate, uh, as the source, which is Johnson's 1724 pirate history tells us. Jones berated Bartholomew Roberts, Roberts stabbed him, and Jones then beat him handsomely, for which he received two lashes from every member of the crew. On another ship, a crew member was sentenced to being tied to a gangway and doused in cold water, and his comrade, as Berg calls him, had him released and then took half of his punishment. Lastly, Berg recounts an incident where the pirate ship that George Rounceville was on was wrecked, and he and five others managed to get on a lifeboat and were rowing away. And then when George's friend, again as Berg calls him, called from the sinking vessel. George tried to get the boat to turn around and go back and save this man, uh, and when they refused, he jumped into the sea and swam back to die with him. Ah. Oh. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, those are very intense connections that these two men
0: yeah. had. Yeah. Similarly, Christopher Miller, who's a professor of African American studies and French at Yale, describes the relationship between Alada Aquiano and Richard Baker as a first person account of Matelotage. So, Alada was kidnapped into slavery as a child in Benin, and he bought his freedom as a young man, and then became involved in the abolition movement and wrote his memoirs. Very interesting. It was a very interesting man. But anyway, in his memoirs, he recalls a friendship he had before he had bought his freedom when he was sailing to England, he made this friendship with a young American man called Richard Baker. Allauder writes, soon after I went on board, he showed me a great deal of partiality and attention. And in return, I grew extremely fond of him. We at length became inseparable. And for the space of two years, he was of very great use to me and was my constant companion and instructor. Although this dear youth had many slaves of his own, yet he and I have gone through many sufferings together on shipboard. And we have many nights lain in each other's bosoms when we were in great distress. So, that example. Yes. They're not pirates. No. And, and does he call it metallotage? No. And that brings up what I was about to bring up, is that all of these examples, apart from that one that the missionary said in the Antilles, is that none of these examples, to me, explicitly seemed to be ones of matelotage at all, despite the fact that they were positioned as such by the modern scholars who were talking about them. You know, they're certainly all examples of pairs of men who were close, but there is no indication of a formalized or ongoing agreement in any of Berg's examples, all of which reference kind of individual moments in mm-hmm. people's lives. And Alaudah and Richard were not pirates. They just kind of happened to be on a boat when they meet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, yeah, none of these texts use the term metallitage as far as I can tell. So... That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the existence of matelotage in the Antilles, and it's spread to pirates more broadly from buccaneer culture, does indicate that this isn't a static or like rigidly defined custom, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one that's spread and grown and changed. So potentially the examples that Berg and Miller give are justifiably relevant, but I feel that there's a lack of clarity in all the sources I read on how metallitage is defined and understood yeah and obviously this reflects like a general lack of sources for pirate life and sexuality and it's this lack that prevents us from being able to say that much about queerness among pirates
1: yeah like i feel like all those examples like even if the word metallitage is never used and they did not have these metallitage agreements all those examples showed like intensely
0: close relationships between two men which you know may well have been queer in some I, way. Yeah, I found it frustrating and I think that there is scholarship to be done on exactly what Matelotage is and how it works and all of that. But I do think that for our purposes, whether those were formally Matelotage agreements or not, they still are this type of, you know, close relationship that whilst arguably not inherently queer, mm. you provide a setting in which you know, if you were a queer man who wanted this close relationship with another man, sexual or not, you know, you could possibly find a niche for it. And that That's the best I can give you as an answer for if pirates were gay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, pirates were gay. Just statistically, some pirates were gay. And at least there are some avenues we can see through some of these examples of what it might have looked like to be a gay pirate or a pirate who is attracted to other men. You know, Mm. what your relationships might have looked like and that
0: kind of thing. But. A lack of strong evidence. Unfortunately, yeah, not the gay paradise that we all hope for. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I have not looked at literally all of the evidence that exists for the golden age of piracy. There were a couple of little anecdotes that I didn't manage to chase down a source for, and so I didn't include. So if you know anyone has any like harder evidence for gay pirates, I would love to hear it, and we can do a little follow-up or something. And obviously, we'll talk about Anne and Mary, so maybe we can at least find lesbian pirates <laughs> if not gay male pirates. But
2: yar, this do not be the gay pirate <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: with that we've been queries fact my name is eli i'm alice and i'm jason if you liked this episode you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a rating out of five stars. And similarly, if you listen to us on Spotify, you can't review us there, but you can leave us a rating. We'd really appreciate if you did so. If you want to find us on the internet, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as queerest Fact, or you can go to queersfact.com to find you know, all of our information and all of our links and stuff. If you want to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can sign up to our Patreon. We do a bunch of stuff on Patreon. We do polls for episodes. We post a newsletter once a month and we do bonus episodes once a month. We'll have one of those coming out, you know, around when this episode comes (laughs) out. So you can get one hot off the press if you want. Hopefully some of you enjoyed the episode we put out last, which was a little bonus episode on Frida Kahlo that we put initially as a Patreon episode so that's a bit of a, a free taster of what these episodes are like if you want to dip your toe in otherwise we will be back on the 1st of september when we'll be discussing the 2022 gay pirate show our flag means death thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then